with me in your Bibles this morning to, to Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, our text this morning will be the first eight verses of this chapter. It's a text that we come to today, and it's one of those text that's a reminder to us of just how well Jesus knows the human heart. And also it's a reminder to us of how gracious he is to condescend to the human heart. That we have our frailties, we have our weaknesses, and he so often speaks to us with such such tenderness and such grace and hits the areas that we know we have. You know, one of the Concerns that I have as a pastor any given week in preaching a message any given Sunday is that I preach something that there's no sense within the congregation of. I don't really need that message. (laughs) That's what's in that for me. But as we come to our text here today, I think that it's a it's a text here that there's something here for all of us. As we see again, just the revelation of the human heart, the propensity that we have within us. Just by what's indicated in the first verse, he told them a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. You know, in the text preceding this, as we considered last Lord's Day, we looked at the kingdom of God, the the coming, the aspects of the kingdom of God that are yet to come in the consummation where Jesus has vividly described the day of His return. He's described it with, with particular clarity. And, it was, and He's compared it to some historical parallels. He says that once, the, once this day comes, the days of the Son of Man comes, it can be likened unto the days of Lot and likened unto the days of Noah when life was going on just as life goes as people are eating and drinking and Marrying and giving in marriage. Just the ordinary things of life. And there will be, there was, there was historically the great intrusions of the judgment of God. In the days of Noah with the flood. In the days of Lot. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says it will be like that in the days of the Son of Man. That life will be just pretty much life goes on as ordinary. But there will be this sudden intrusion into life as it's been known. And it will be the judgment of God as Christ returns to judgment of God upon those who are not prepared for Him. So having vividly described that day of His return, He offers what are some practical instructions for those of us who are here now in the days of waiting. That is regarding the importance of of diligence in prayer. And we need to keep in focus that when we talk about prayer, we're not merely talking about an activity. We're not merely talking about an, something that we, that we just do. That the essence of prayer is this. There is a sense of the presence and the reality of God. That's the essence of true biblical prayer. That there be a Godward focus in our lives and in our thinking and in our perspective. And so Jesus here, speaking of the importance of this diligence in prayer, the importance that we maintain in our lives a Godward focus rather than an internal or even an outward focus. Recognizing we have to deal with those things, but they are not the all in all. And also here, against losing heart, becoming weary, losing hope in the midst of the battle. Anybody ever been there? (laughs) Most of us, if not all of us, can say, yes, I have been. Perhaps you could say, I'm there right now. I'm losing heart. So how do we remain spiritually sharp? How do we maintain a spiritual diligence? How do we continue to live a life in which we are spiritually engaged 
day after day after day in the world in which we live. When it seems that there's little to indicate that anything is going to change anytime soon. How do we do that? How do we keep on? Look at our text here this morning. Read with me here. Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith? Will He find the faith? Will he find that faith on the earth? Well, have you ever lost heart? You know, to start something with great enthusiasm. And we know we're prone to that. We see something that we're about to go into and there's a sense of excitement and a sense of enthusiasm as we go into something. And then we find out that as we get into it, that over a period of time and maybe it doesn't go as we as we'd hoped. Maybe it's extended to be over a longer period of time than we had anticipated. And so over the period of time, we begin to tire and we get to a certain point. If we sense that progress is not being made or it's becoming so slow, we just want to quit. Well, there's some things we can do that in. There's a few things around my house I've done that on. But when it comes to the spiritual realm... Such an attitude and such a faltering can be disastrous. When we get to a point where we no longer believe that God is really interested. Or if He is interested, it doesn't really matter. And so we, we lose heart. Again, I'm thankful as I read this text that Jesus knows me. He knows the human heart. That we have such a tendency, don't we? To get to a point and it just seems like the solution here is quit. It's quit. Well, Jesus wants to give us some encouragement to maintain spiritual diligence as He gives to His disciples here. And that's why He gives this parable according to Luke. And so let's take to heart the encouragements that He gives to them and let's apply them to our hearts and our lives today so that when we are in these crisis points or, again, if you may be right smack down the middle one right now, But you realize the alternative is not to quit. It's to press. To press on. It's to continue to have a Godward focus. To continue to pray. To continue to look to Him. So what are the encouragements that we can gain from our text here? Well, first of all, as Jesus presents this parable, there is the consistency in God's character. There is a consistency within the character of God. Jesus here presents these encouragements in our text. 
by using a contrast. And we've we've looked at other parables in in the scripture, other places in the teaching of Jesus where he'll do this. He'll use a, a contrast because he wants to make this perfectly clear in our mind. And sometimes the best way to clarify something is to not to give you it's like this. It's to give you it's the complete opposite of this. And so as we're thinking of this parable today, we're thinking in terms of contrast. And the contrast here would be drawn between this judge, this unrighteous judge, and God Himself. And it's a very stark contrast that Jesus draws. And it's so stark that He, he used this way in order to strengthen His argument as He moves from lesser unto greater. In other words, He wants to think like this. When we are tempted to lose heart, when we are tempted to, some have called it, to enter into a spiritual fainting fit, when we're tempted to give up, to lay aside the, the weapons of our warfare, which certainly prayer is one of those, it says, I want you to think like this. How much more? Moving again from a lesser to a greater. How much more might God's people expect Him to work on their behalf for all the good and all the right reasons if someone like this unrighteous judge in this parable will act on behalf of this widow for all the wrong reasons? That's his reasoning. If this judge can be eventually moved for all the wrong reasons to act on behalf of this widow, can we not trust and believe that God will move on behalf of His people for all the right reasons? That's the picture that He wants us to see here. So as you think about this judge, you think, what kind of an individual is this? It's bad. And it's deliberately ugly. It's deliberately one we look at and say, what, what kind of a person would be like this? Because we want to see the contrast. And that this is nothing. This is nothing like God. And so we see here the first contrast that is drawn is one of character. The judge here, he is portrayed as one who lived only unto himself. Verse 2, it says, In a certain city, a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And even his boast in verse 4. This is what he says. Though I do not fear God and I do not respect man. So what do we have here? A man who lives entirely unto himself. A man that has no sense of living righteously before his creator. He has then no moral standard outside or above himself. He sets the standard. This is what I want to do. This is what I think is right or it's right for me. This is what I will do. I don't, I'm not concerned about God. No fear of God. I'm not concerned about the praise nor the criticism of men. Doesn't make any difference. My own man, do what I want to do. So he's it's a life that is lived and operated as he deems it is fit for nothing more than his own purposes, his own concerns. He's described by Jesus when Jesus references in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge Jesus says of this judge, he's unrighteous. There is no rightness. There is no holiness. There is no goodness in this judge. Unrighteous. He doesn't live by God's requirement. The requirement that God sets upon judges that they execute justice. That the role of a judge, of an earthly judge, is to represent God Himself and to bring about justice among men as God Himself would decree. That's His job. To reflect the judgments of God. And He uses His position for His own interest. <clears throat> it's not any sense of service, our benefit, 
to others. It all comes down to what does he want to do for himself. That's one side. The contrast then would be what's God like? What's God like? God is righteous. God is just. And in the verse 7 where Jesus he gives this, it's really a rhetorical question. Will not God bring about justice? Will not God bring about justice? Is God a God of justice? Is God a God of righteousness? Or not? Well, which is He? Righteous or unrighteous? And Jesus answered the question there in verse 8. I tell you, He will bring about justice. Because the God who has made us, the God who has called us, is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice and His character does not change. Now, let's build the case. Bear with me here. You might want to jot some verses down. <laughs> but we're going to do just real quick a look at some scriptures, particularly from the Old Testament, to remind us of the justice, the rightness of God. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Here's the question Abraham asked when God's going to send judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. What is, and Abraham goes to intercede on their behalf. What does he say? He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he is. If there's any judge that's going to deal justly, it is the judge of all the earth. He is the righteous one. Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for the righteous God. For the righteous God. The righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 9, 8. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou wilt judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Psalm 72, verse 2. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 96 verse 13. Before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Psalm 97 verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. You want more? I got some more. Psalm 98 verse 9. Before the Lord... For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness, the people with equity. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. Psalm 119, 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind of all of his deeds. Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Daniel 9, 14. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he's done. Pardon my brevity here. 
Do you get the point? All right, it's like, why in the world you read so many verses? Because that's the background the people of God need to have in their mind when you start talking about the character of God. He is righteous. He's righteous. He judges righteously. And so when Jesus issues this question here in verse 7, will not God bring about justice? The hearer's immediate response ought to be, if the background was given to us in this portion of the Old Testament Scriptures, the response ought to be, of course. Of course. How would I expect, how would I ever think that God would do anything less? So Jesus' appeal here to a struggling, to a doubting, to a fainting To a believer who is losing heart. Is this. God. Is. Just. God is. Righteous. In all. Of his ways. And so when you find yourself in the world in which you do find yourself. Where it appears that the hand of God is stayed. That God is not moving. That God is not bringing about justice. Just wait. Just wait. He will bring about what is right. On behalf of his people. Believers will be vindicated for every wrong And when it's all said and done, folks, when we stand before God, we stand with Him in all of eternity, and what we look at now and we think, this is not what I bargained for. When you get to eternity and look back, you say, well, that was nothing. That's what Paul says. That the afflictions that we endure in this present life, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Say, man, that was nothing. We'll see it then. I know it's not so easy to see that now, but we confess that truth now. But the trials that I endure now are not worthy to be compared for what awaits us. There is a time when God's enemies will be crushed, when justice and righteousness will once and for all prevail. It will happen. So likewise, in our struggles, in our battles, in our temptations to, to unbelief, in a sin-dominated world where sin seems to go largely unchecked, God's not dealing with this situation like I would deal with it. It's a good thing you're not God. That's a good thing. That God deal with it as He wills in His time. But rest assured, justice will be done. And the justice that is due upon the enemies of God, if it comes in the forms of persecution upon the people of God, the justice that God requires will be either poured out upon His enemies or He has received that judgment already upon Himself for those who will come into His kingdom. Justice will be done. Every sin will be accounted for. And every individual that paid for his own or is paid in Christ. But justice will be done. So when the righteous suffer at the hands of, of evil men, justice will be done. Don't lose heart. Don't abandon a Godward focus. Don't become so focused upon what's visible to us in the horizontal that we lose sight of the vertical. And that is that, that there is a God who is sovereign. And that there is a God who is controlling the affairs of my life. And He will execute justice. Will He not? 
Jesus says very clearly, I tell you, He will. He will bring about justice for them quickly. Will it ever stop? Yes. Yes. Will sin ever stop? Yes. Because the just, righteous character of God demands it. It will be addressed. So this comfort and encouragement to be found in the consistency of God's character. God has revealed Himself from all of eternity of one who is just. And He will not change. He will be just when, he, when history, as we know it, comes to an end. Second encouragement He gives to us, that is the compassion for His chosen. The compassion that He has for His chosen. The second contrast between this judge and God is in the care or the concern for the petitioners. We have on the one hand the judge, again. This is a judge who is disinterested in the widow's plight. This is a judge who has no pity upon this widow just by virtue of the fact she's a widow and widows could be easily taken advantage of and evidently she was being. No pity. No concern. No concern for injustice against her. Not persuaded by repeated pleas to finally consider her case. You know, sometimes you'll hear something and you kind of disregard it. And you hear it a few more times. You know, there may be some merit to this. That's not what happened here. <laughs> this guy just didn't all of a sudden wake up and say, You know, she's got a real good case. I need to hear her. Not the case here. This is a judge who simply acts from a selfish motivation, according to verse 5. Last part of verse 4. Even though I do not fear God nor respect man... Yeah, because this widow bothers me. She is wearing me out. Or she's going to. And I can be free of this nag by very simply addressing the matter. So in his mind, he just kind of waited out. What's best for me here? Keep dealing with her and hoping that she'll go away forever. Or to address the matter and be done with her once and for all. So he does grant her legal protection. And she is vindicated. But again, the motivation is all wrong here. There's nothing concerned, nothing compassion. It's all self centered. But what about God? How does God respond? You know, is God so busy in heaven that He cannot be bothered with us? I mean, after all, God is, He is transcendent. Is He so far removed for us just by, the, by the, the essence of His being, by the kind of God that He is, that, you know, you got to shake and pull. You know, your kids do that sometimes. You know, they grab your pants leg and they keep grabbing and pulling Oh, 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 I see. In verse 7, the rhetorical question again in verse 7. Jesus says, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? He's very specific here. Will not God, God bring about justice for His elect, for His chosen, for those who are His? We've been learning in Sunday school the last couple of weeks of when God made that choice. Chosen according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Chosen before the creation of the world. That's what elect means is to choose someone. So God chooses. And before the world was ever created, God chose that He would give His gift of salvation to, to millions of people, undeserving sinners. 
His elect. His people. Before you were a person. At the plea of a desperate widow is honored by an indifferent judge. Do you think God will ignore the cries of His people whom He loves? What does God's election, that God does elect, that God does choose, what does it choose? What does it demonstrate to us? It demonstrates an eternal love that was set upon us in Christ. It's a divine intent to be a father and to be a shepherd, which is in fact the imagery that's given to us in Scripture. To be a father and a shepherd to these, to his elect, to his chosen. Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children. Here's the picture. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Namely, those who are His. Proverbs 3.12 For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father, the son in whom He delights. This is the love of God for His children. And it does include reproving and punishing and correcting. Isaiah 40 verse 11 Like a shepherd... He will tend his sheep, his flock in his arms. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing. In Ezekiel 34, 12, 12a, as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. See the pictures be conveyed by this imagery here? This imagery of a father caring for his children, the normal expectation. And I know we have aberrations and we have corruptions in a fallen world, but the normal expectation is a father loving and caring and having compassion for his children. It's certainly, and it's certainly the norm with among the people of God. can't imagine someone professing to be a believer who's a father and not having compassion and love for his children. And the picture and the image that's given to us when we think about the shepherd caring for his sheep, just the gentleness that is portrayed there. Understanding the, the sensitivity and the weakness and the frailty of this small little lamb who needs the care and the guidance the protection of his shepherd. And God says, I am that to my people. And so when the time comes that we are tempted to think that God's not hearing, God's not moving, I cry to the Lord and nothing is happening. His word of comfort is this. Remember, you are my chosen. You are my people. This is the way I deal with my elect. Those who are brought into myself, chosen before the foundation of the world, as I love them and I am compassionate toward them. I know their pains and I will care for them. And don't abandon God's compassion. Don't think it's not there. And by the way, folks, if you turn away from God, where are you going to go? Where do you turn? And to run, even to the arms of God, and to run in our blindness, and to run in our weakness, and to run confessing, Oh God, I don't have any sense in my heart that you carry anything, but you say you do, so I'm coming to you. There's no other place to go. And I plead for your compassions and your mercy as a father to his child. It's the picture he wants us to see here. We're tempted to lose heart. Don't do it. Keep praying. Keep crying out. Keep calling. Keep looking Godward. Because He does care. And His care for you is far beyond the care of anyone else you can imagine for you. And His capability of care for you is anything is, is far beyond anything you can do for yourself. And if you don't believe... He takes care of it. You'll start trying to take care of yourself. And if you want to mess real fast, go that road. You can't fix it. Well, I can't fix it, but God's not fixing it. 
You let Him have His time and His way. But remember this, He cares passionately for you as His children. You think God doesn't care for His elect, for His chosen? Any more than that? And then just the, the parallel that Paul draws from that, from the, from the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet His enemies, the enemies of God, He died for us. How much more can I believe that now that I am His child, He will not withhold any good thing from me. If He did that for me while I was His enemy, what should I expect from God now that I am His child? See, God does not maintain a detached indifference toward His children. He's not detached and indifferent. He cares. So we must refuse the lies of the enemy who would come and bring the charges against God that God's not concerned about you. You heard that one? God doesn't care about me. All He cares about me in a general sort of way. But as far as meeting and dealing with the true issues of my life and heart, God's not doing anything. God doesn't care for me. I tell you, He does. Because that is the love of God for His elect. That is the love of God for His people. And that's what Jesus says here. Will not God bring about justice for His elect? And then in verse 8, I tell you, He will bring about justice for them same people. So to be encouraged, to press on, assured of God's love, God's compassion for His people. You know, we may not think that God is anything like the unrighteous judge, and I would think that's not a problem here, among us here, that we don't think God's like this unrighteous judge. But on the other hand, we don't tend to think of Him like He really is either, do we? You know, our understanding when we get in these trials, we get in these battles, our, our understanding, our view of God becomes somewhere in between. He's not this unrighteous judge, but He's not this great compassionate God either who's dealing with all my problems. He cares more than you can imagine. Imagine in your mind what you, an individual, you, that in your mind this is the epitome of an ideal father. Perhaps an individual, maybe your own father. Maybe a father you've seen. And God's love and compassion for His children far exceeds, cannot even be compared. What you would say, this is the in my mind, the epitome of a father and the care for his children. Compassion for his chosen. And finally, it's a confirmation to his church. The third contrast that's given to us in this parable is regarding the timing. All right, yeah, the justice of God. But when's all that going to take place? Or how, how do we look for this? How's, when's it going to happen? What's the time frame here? So it's regarding timing and delay. And we see that this, this unjust judge, that he's had this, <clears throat> this woman kept coming, it says in verse 3, she kept coming to him. <clears throat> asking for legal protection. So there was a delay for a while with him, but what, what changed it? He delayed until he deemed it best for himself to respond. What about God? Does God delay? Does 
You know, we have in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, there the cry of the martyrs is, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you bring vindication for our, our blood? How long? We find here that God's delay is until His perfect plan is accomplished. Until God accomplishes what He desires to accomplish. Because in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, the response to that question, that prayer, is how long? The response is that there is a number of... There's a number, a foreordained, predetermined number by God of martyrs. And he said, when that number is filled up, then by vengeance has come. I was listening to a man speak one time. He said, man, let's go to the mission field. Let's get that number filled up fast. (laughs) Be willing to live Run risk to live dangerously, not foolishly, before the cause of the gospel of Christ says, listen, God's ordained that some are going to die. If it be us, let it be me, but I'm not going to run from it out of fear. But God has a purpose. God has a plan. Well, when will this take place? Well, Jesus' words, in verse 8 here, the question in verse 7 the last part of verse 7 is, the question is completed with, and will He delay long over them? And then the answer is in verse 8, I tell you, He will bring about justice for them quickly. Now, the, the problem is, how do we understand this quickly to be applied? How can it be that quickly can be accurate for anyone other than how can it be accurate for anyone other than those who are here when Christ returns which they see his judgment coming quickly they're they're here but how do you say to the disciples as Jesus is speaking to here who are they don't know but we know now who are about 2,000 years removed from this return of Christ How do you say to them quickly? How do you do that? Well, I think there's some things to consider to answer that question. Well, first of all, Revelation 22, verse 12 reminds us again, Jesus there says, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I think we need to understand this in a couple of ways, relatively speaking. Relative in the sense that God's time is not our time. That those who would say that God is not fulfilling this supposed promise, Peter says that he's not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness. But we need to regard this delay in regard to his patience, in fact, as salvation, Second Peter chapter 3. So in other words, there's no time to, for delay here. You need to be acting and preparing for Christ's return. So relatively in that sense. But relative also in the sense that there are measures. There are measures of vindication revealed even then as well as in our day. And what I mean by that is that you can look around and you can find instances where men and women are receiving the just penalty for their sins. And I'm not, I'm not trying to look out on the world scene and say, ah, oh, this is a consequence of this sin. I'm not being that prophetic. I'm just saying very simply, you can look around the world and you can see God bring about punishment upon men for the sin. We see a measure of it. Enough to remind us that there is an accountability. 
But we don't see, we don't see full-blown justice being done across the board at this point. Another thing to consider is, as we think about it, this is descriptive in a sense when he says, coming quickly. When the scripture refers to Christ's return, it makes very clear that this will happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, that there is a rapidity. Once we get to what we have what we have termed as the eschatological events, the last days events. Once those things begin to start happening, they come rapid fire. That Christ comes in the twinkling of an eye. He is he meets he's in the air. Those who have died in Christ, they meet him in the air. Those who are his alive join with him and they return to the earth. Now depending on your eschatology, you may have some different points on particulars than I do. That's okay. But that's the essence of it. I believe, incidentally, in one return, not two. That Christ will return one more time. But as Christ returns and these events transpire, they come very quickly. And that once it happens, it's going to be fast. So there is a there is a speed even in that sense. But the significant point for us here is he confirms what has been throughout the church throughout the ages the church's expectation and that is he will return listen folks when it's all said and done all the naysayers all the critics all those who would mock the church those who are looking forward to the return of Christ they will be proven wrong the church we vindicated the church the people of God are waiting for the return of Christ we proven right not to be boasting in but for the, by the grace of God the scriptures will be proven right. Jesus' promise will be proven right. I will return. There's the point. There will be a return, and that return will be much as, as he described, as we considered last week, just as in the days of Noah, just in the days of Lot. There is a suddenness to it, it comes quickly. And that's it. So the real question for us to consider as we would finish up here. Is the question that Jesus asked. In verse 8. When the Son of Man comes. Will he find faith? And the Greek here has the article. The faith. That faith. Such faith. Faith such as this. Faith, faith that perseveres. Faith that does not lose heart. Faith that continues to have a Godward focus, whatever may come, until the end. Until all of our expectations and our hopes are fulfilled in the return of Christ. Will He find that faith? And the question here is not that we look at it and try to answer yes or no. The question is so that we might search our own hearts and say, well, is such faith in this heart? Which is why I titled the, the sermon this morning. Will you be found praying? Or will you be found having laid aside something that you never should have laid aside? Prayer. Will you be found praying? What will Christ come if He comes in your lifetime? Will he find such faith as this in your heart? A faith that refuses to die by the grace of God. Tempted to lose heart. Find encouragement today, saints. Be encouraged today. God's not changed. You want to righteousness? Righteousness will come. And there is a love of righteousness in the hearts of God's people. A love for righteousness. So we can even look at the imprecatory Psalms and we see a love for righteousness. A love for the, for the exaltation of God. 
that exceeds a concern for men because God is far more worthy of these things. He's not changed. He is righteous. Be encouraged, dear saints. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He's done all these things for you before you were even born. While you were counted as an enemy of God, He gave His Son to die. If He's done that for you when you're on the other side, when you're opposed to Him, can you not find any measure of comfort in knowing that now that I'm on, He's on my side, I'm on His side, if God be for us, He can be against us? Any measure of encouragement in that? I'm a child of God. It's simply a confirmation that He gives to His church. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. It's the message of Christ. It's the message of the the hope of the church for 2,000 years. And it's not changed. And that message is confirmed time and time and time throughout the Scripture. So there is encouragement for us, isn't there not? Now, it's nice here on Sunday mornings, but tomorrow Monday gets ugly again, doesn't it? I've got to go back out into that ugly world again. You take these encouragements with you. And you hold to them tenaciously. And even if it's holding on with, with, with much in the way of unbelief, Lord, I want to believe these things. I want to believe that you're righteous. I want to believe that your, your character is the same for me and your love for me as your child is the same as it's always been. I want to believe these things. I'm, I'm losing a grip. <laughs> I want to. Lord, give me your grace. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. But don't. Don't leave off praying. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for your, your condescending to us. Lord, who would suspect that ones who have as much as we have in revelation, as much as we have in a relationship with Christ, that we would so easily doubt, that we would so easily lose heart, and yet such is the nature of our, our makeup, our fallen creatures, that we would much rather trust in what we can see than trust in you, much rather trust in ourselves than trust in you, and so quickly gravitating to that. Lord, help us. Make us a people of prayer. But not just a mere exercise and activity, not just a mere expression of words, but prayer that is motivated, motivated by an assurance that you are here, that you hear us, that you care for us. Prayer that is fitting of a people who have been redeemed by their God and who know Him. Lord, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.